Why can Starbucks sell a $7 cup of coffee? Why did you binge Netflix knowing you had classes in the morning? Why are you so dedicated to that fitness trainer? Well, we as humans react to stimuli. We react to things we see, but also might not. The field of behavioral psychology is full of concepts, which are applied to influence our daily decisions. And today's guest is Jen Kleinhens of Choice Hacking. My name is Andrew Mayer, and welcome to the New Normal Podcast. This podcast is about innovation and innovating in these changing digital times. Today, I landed an exclusive, first time for me. Jen just announced that she's taking her business, her pet project that she loves so much, she's taking it full time, leaving the agency life, which she's known for so long, to run her own business. I'll have her tell us in a moment more about what that business is. She's the founder of Choice Hacking. She's authored a book also called Choice Hacking. It's available everywhere. She's a YouTuber, a podcaster, and lots of years of experience and customer experience. Now she's an entrepreneur and content creator. As always, links to everything I talk about are in the show notes below. In this episode, we talk about what principles got her on her exercise bike this week, how bias plays a role when doing user research, tips for a podcaster on how to grow subscribers and get them to interact. If you want a free chapter of a book, go to choicehacking.com slash book. Oh yeah, Jen told me to ask you this nicely. Could you go on to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating? You might not know, but Spotify also has introduced a star rating as well, but only in the iOS app. Also, if you want to hear more about New Normal, perhaps you might sign up for my newsletter. As always, links are below. But for now, let's get on to the show. Jen, welcome to your new role. Well, not your new role, but it's your new full-time role. Can I ask, is this a first-time announcement on a podcast of your new position? Yes. This is the official announcement, Andrew. You, you got it. You snagged I got the, the exclusive. exclusive. <laughs> yes, I got it. Jen Kleinhens, as I introduced in the pre-roll here, she's now gone full-time, which I can relate with and appreciate. Thank you for being on New Normal. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. A quick question before we get into the real questions. Have you been on your Peloton bike this week? And if so, two-part question, which of the 10 behavioral tricks or <laughs> methods did you fall into? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, honestly, mere exposure because we just got, so our garage has been converted now into a gym. Well, converted. We got a rack, so a power rack. If you've ever seen like, I don't know if you're into lifting for listeners, you know, squats and bench press and all that fun stuff. So I've been spending a lot of time on that and I got really, I felt really guilty seeing my Peloton sit in the corner and paying attention to lifting weights and not getting on the Peloton. So the mere exposure effect got me and I thought, oh, I see it. Uh, yeah, I should get on it. So there the exposure go. effect. It was, you saw it. It's, <laughs> it's pretty. It's nice. And it just dragged you right in. For those who don't know, totally. I mentioned in the pre-roll podcast uh, that you just re-released from, from last year, which I missed last year, about Peloton. Some of you, the listeners might not know who it is. One of these exercise bikes that had a big hype, kind of like Zoom did during all this pandemic here. And your podcast had 10 of these uh, behavioral psychology rules of how they, how they build it and how they designed it there. Before we get any deeper in here, please, could you explain to the listeners what is choice hacking and why would perhaps a listener might want to reach out and connect with you. Sure. Choice hacking is, well, it's many things. It's a digital platform where I teach through case studies, through courses, and then also through consulting. I help businesses figure out how to use applied behavioral science and psychology in digital and retail experiences. So my background is a mix of different things, but customer experience is the kind of the bucket I would put around it. So 
I've been working in the UX field, innovation in retail and digital retail for many years. And I've also been using like behavioral economics and consumer psychology. I, I got exposed to it back when I was getting my MBA and was always fascinated by it and using it in different sort of forms and fashions. And it's always kind of been a passion of mine. So it started as some blog posts on Medium that people seem to really enjoy. It turned into a book. It turned into a website and courses, a podcast, a YouTube channel. So it's just found a life of its own, really. So what percentage of your work week do you spend creating content? I don't mean the sessions you're holding, but the real, the, the podcasts, the YouTubes, the, the courses, all these are content. What, is, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so at the minute, it's probably 80-20. It's probably 80% content and 20% consulting mm -hmm. or training. And I think for me, that's probably, it's a, it's a ratio that'll probably change as we go through the year. Like it'll probably become more, more of a 60-40. But I only think that's because I, I've got a lot of goals to accomplish with the content side of things. And once that happens, I think it's going to not shrink, but I think it's going to find more of a balance with in-person consulting and training. I think which to me it is honestly a little sad. Like I like to consult, I like to train, but I'm in my element when I'm just sitting down and like writing a podcast and recording it. I actually had a creative career for a really long time. I was a classical musician for like 15 years. So I was a violist, I was a violinist. And so I've always had like a need for a creative outlet. And that's why I love content so much. So we'll see where the years take us. But um, I think content's always going to probably be the majority of what I do. Is that because your product can easily be digital? So I did in-person consulting um, yeah. for, for 25 years and it's very time intensive, right? It is. The, the travel's involved, uh, the preparation you have to do, then you, the, the, the substance, the delivery of itself, the, the after work that has to be done there, the wrap up, uh, and then getting ready at the same time to the next one. So it's not very efficient when you think about it. So you may have a month and you might do two consultancies in a month. Um, depending on the type and scope yeah. and, and time frame of things, uh, but you're not doing two a week and you can do two a week digitally. Definitely. Yeah, I think the thing to me is it's not scalable. And I, I, I do think it's important because, you know, I, I need to kind of be out in the real world and talking to real businesses and seeing how things are evolving and making sure I kind of keep a toe in, you know, the waters of, of business land and marketing and UX and all of that. Um, but yeah, I, th I think the thing about content for, I think for many months, for maybe about like the first year and a half where I was creating podcasts and YouTube and all of this stuff, I was really, really stressed out because I thought I, I didn't really have a strategy. I would just write something and then I would say, okay, well now I need to write a podcast and I'm going to write a blog post about like Target. I'm going to write a podcast about Costco. And it, I didn't really have a system. You know, I didn't have a distribution system. I didn't have a way to kind of produce the content in a way that was efficient and that was suited for the channel. And that was mainly because I was working a really time intensive job that I really needed to focus on with some amazing clients, but you know, agency land, it's very demanding. So it was kind of fitting in content as and when I could, just because I like to do it. You know, I don't, I like to say to my uh, fiance, Rob, I don't really have a hobby. Like creating content has been my hobby for a long time because I like to do it. I, I do, you know, spend every weekend and every holiday just writing blog posts and podcasts. Um, but now I have much more of a, uh, more of a system in place, mm -hmm. I think. And it's, you know, a system, like creative system um, in quotation marks, but it, it allows me, I think, to 
be more focused on telling a bigger story with more dimensions. So in other words, it's not just about a blog post about one company and a podcast about another one. Now it's, let's look at, you know, Instagram. So I can look at it through many different lenses. On the podcast, maybe it's what makes Instagram interesting, why I would use it, what's all the psychology behind that. The blog post might be a longer version of that. You know, the YouTube video might be asking, you know, is Instagram evil? Is it ethical? Is it doing the right thing? So it's taking, I think, like a subject at a time and just kind of understanding how the different channels respond to different angles or sort of different lenses through which I can tell that story. I feel like you're talking to me as my consultant because I'm feeding myself. Um, I'm working on my own content strategy framework myself right now. Yeah. Um, so I've been learning from other people over the last six or eight months or so, realizing similarly like you, that I was kind of like a little bit here and a little bit there. And I, I just felt putting out all this major content, uh, these these long form pieces, whether that's yeah. uh, audio or, or writing, whatever it might be. And I'm just, I, I need to have more littler pieces of content available too. Mm -hmm. So just working on from, from main content to micro content, how to reuse things. You mentioned in the pre-roll yeah. about audiograms. My followers on LinkedIn will know that I will take two or three audiograms out of this, out of this interview here and reuse that on, on Instagram and on, on LinkedIn mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and just realize that, boy, I've been giving up so much ground in that. The strategy was missing is what you were saying. So you were, you were in a rowboat with one row, you know, going in circles, which is nice, but in order to go straight, you got to get a plan. And I think that's something we know from our business times in working for corporations and bigger things, you got to first off have a strategy in order to, to make it to the goal. Coming back to some of the interesting things that I think my listeners might not know, uh, behavioral psychology and some of these, your very entertaining content that you put out for those who are into this thing. I'll ask you a question and you can describe uh, what it, what's behind it. Why do people love vending machines? Why do people love vending machines? Yeah. Oh, I feel like I'm being tested now. That, that was on your live cast. <laughs> it was, yeah. I'm like, well, I've got to, I've got to go There's back. There's a surprise effect. It it's a really interesting one because I think this is one of, from my days in business, one of the things that I always really like is taking unsexy things and seeing, the, I don't know, the sexiness in them for lack of a better term. Like what makes this interesting? Or the thing about vending machines, I think they're kind of undergoing a little bit of a, like everything over the past couple of years, like things that are convenient, things where you don't have like a high touch environment are becoming more and more popular. Just, I think, for obvious reasons. But you're sort of seeing in the U.S. and like to a fair, a fair amount in Europe as well, what has been happening like in places like Japan for years and years. I did a little bit of traveling in Japan. I'm not an expert. But one of the things that really stood out to me when I spent a couple of weeks actually getting my MBA and doing like business things there was just like what the vending machine world is like. Mm. like they have hot vending machines and cold vending machines and you can basically get anything in a vending machine but it's really about reducing friction it's an additional channel that like people would not expect so when you look in places like the u.s or europe you get soda and maybe a snack from right. a vending machine right. and they're very low tech and they're they're just not interesting or attractive in any way that yeah it's really undergone a renaissance and that's that's really it it's convenient it's easy to use like it's it's a mm. low friction sort of easy business to kind of just throw up and go with it's amazing i i've enjoyed years i haven't flown as much recently but those airport vending machines you'll know in yeah. the us as well that are often high tech right well airports a great example because once you get through security they got you like you'll pay 10 dollars for a bottle of water like you're just basically being held hostage like i'll <laughs> just the mentality that i have when i go 
into an airport and I'm sitting there and spending like the hour or whatever it is waiting for the plane. Like I never, I never read a magazine ever in my life. I will buy a magazine in an airport. But the cashless effect, I think, is part of it as well. So it's like whipping out the card. So we're more likely to spend more when it's easier to spend. And usually the, what that means is like a Google Pay on your phone or a credit card as opposed to cash. Imagine taking $100 bills and having to slide them through the vending machine. You probably would think twice about buying those noise-canceling headphones. Well, let me, let me take something out of your book now because I'm curious mm-hmm. uh, about it there. You, you write that how do you make sure your customer experience is designed for what people do, not what they say they'll do? What do you mean uh, by that? It's this classic issue of, you know, you go into a focus group and you're like, okay, I'm going to talk to these 12 people and they're going to break this problem wide open. You know, it's they're, they're going to tell me exactly why they're doing whatever they do. But, you know, behavioral science tells us that everything goes through, you know, filters. Information goes through filters to get into your brain. So through cognitive biases and all sorts of stuff. It's not really objective. So you're thinking one thing and then I'll give you a good example. So I, I sat in a focus group for, let's call them a global fast food brand. Now this is back in grad school. So this is not, you know, anything that's recent, but it's sitting there with a group of moms talking about, I don't know, an enjoyable meal for children. Let's call it that. And, you know, why do you feed your, your kids this enjoyable meal? Because on the surface, it's not very healthy. And you could see them sitting and looking at the other moms before they responded. And they all said, well, you know, they've been doing a lot of work on health. I feel like it's health. I mean, there's like organic things in it. And you know, that's not true. You know that they gave their kid this enjoyable meal because they were driving down the road and they saw the sign and there was a toy and the kid wanted the toy. Or the kid was screaming because they were hungry and that happened to be really convenient and expedient. But what was happening was, you know, They're saying something that's going through the filter of their social context. So then as a marketer, UX or CX person, you're getting secondhand information. Mm -hmm. It's not really going to help you solve a problem because it's not really telling you why they're doing what they're doing. And honestly, most of the time, we don't even really know. We might think that we chose, you know, maybe we went into a Starbucks and we got uh, a grande size, a medium size, because I don't know, it's just. But everybody else got a granny size. That's what I'm going to get. But actually, you got it because of the the decoy effect, because you looked at the large and the large was like, you know, way more expensive than it should have been. And the small was way too cheap and way too small. So you thought, OK, I'll get the one in the middle. And that's actually behavioral science working on your brain. But if you asked me, even as a person who works in this every day, I'd probably say, well, you know, I don't know. I'd say I always get grande. Like somebody else in front mm-hmm. of me got grande. So I just that's the one I got. As a a user experience or a customer experience researcher, how do you go about trying to get the right answers, the true answers out of their, out of your people you're researching? In marketing, they have something called market orientation, which basically says when you think like your customer or you are the customer. And what everybody forgets is that, you know, if I'm a customer of, I don't know, Marks and Spencer's, it's a retailer here in the UK, and I love Marks and Spencer's and I go in and I spend money, but then all of a sudden I get hired by an ad agency and I'm working on Marks and Spencer's. I no longer have market orientation because everything that I'm thinking now has to do with how can we push a specific product or, you know, I, I am invested in it and I can no longer see through the eyes of the customer. I don't have that empathy. So I do think that focus groups, interviews, that's all important to kind of get some of the clues. But at the end of the day, I'm a big believer in, you know, the behavioral science, you know, the psychology, you start to put together the pieces, but I would always look at what people are doing not what they're saying they're doing, because what they're doing will reveal, you know, any of those kind of biases going on in their head. It will reveal whether your app is designed well. 
or if it's designed poorly, they might say it's the greatest thing they've ever seen, but maybe they're just very nice and they don't want to hurt your feelings. You know what I mean? So this is one of those things where it's, I think the the actions betray the thoughts, even if the thoughts don't really understand that they're there or why they're there, what the motivation for doing something is. I learned a lot about the cognitive biases and other, all the other biases that people bring into these research fields. It sounds like what you're describing, this is a whole lot harder to get right than it is just by following the steps on paper. Yeah, that's why we have a job. <laughs> so let, let me let me let me switch this a little bit uh, because I, I feel like I'm patient and you're a doctor here today. What behavioral psychology tips would you have for a podcaster? Ooh, for a podcaster. Yeah. Well, depends. Let's say I've got an objective. I want more people to take action, whether that is to leave comments or click on something, sign up for a newsletter, you know, all those call to actions. A few things. So I think you know, if you're trying to do something like get reviews, I always think that there's a principle called reciprocity, which is exactly what it sounds like on the tin, right? So basically what it says is if you do a favor for someone or give them a gift, they feel indebted. They feel like they need to return it. And that is something, it's, it's a very universal principle. You see it in, as far as, I, as far as I know, every culture, every sort of age group. Um, so potentially you could just reach out on individual email. You could say, hey, you know, I'll either, either I'll give you something if you go on and leave a review and send me an email with your review in it, like prove to me that you've done it. I'll give you a free gift. I'll give you a free book, whatever it might be. You could reach out to people individually. And just say like, hey, this is not a copy and paste email. I just really need reviews so that other mm -hmm. people can find this content that you seem to be enjoying. What I do is a few different things, but it's it's all kind of related to like the lead magnet stuff. So it's, you know, giving away the first chapter of my book for free or, you know, putting the book on sale for, you know, 99 cents just for people who listen to the podcast, that kind of stuff. It's It's definitely a challenge. And I think you know, the, the best thing that you can do with the podcast, I think, to pull people in as well is make it relevant to them. Like, you know, talk about you know, regional businesses or, you know, bring in like clips from movies. That's what I try to do just to make things relatable because everybody, you know, I think the very first podcast I did, I used a tiny little clip from uh, Fight Club. And like a lot of people know if you haven't seen Fight Club, you know what Fight Club is. You know, if I sit there and explain it for a, a, a second or two, you kind of get it right. So you you can grab onto it. You can relate to it. And then all of a sudden, all of the more complicated things that I'm using as we, you know, are talking about as we go through the podcast, the more high level principles and things, it's more relatable because you've kind of been hooked in by something you already know. I like that last one. I think you're just going to cause me more work in producing my podcast, <laughs> but I think that's a really interesting tip. Jen, I've got one standard question I ask all my guests. There's no right or wrong answer. What does innovation mean to you? Oh, that's such a good question. That's one of those things. We were talking about the looking at things through different lenses. I can see what innovation used to mean to me. And I think, you know, we talked about this in, sort of before we started the interview. Like for many years before I was in marketing, I was a professional musician. I was a classical violist and violinist. Um, and I think coming from a, sort of that outside perspective into business, I would have initially said that innovation is tearing everything up. It is totally new ideas. There's radical new ideas. And then I went and worked at a corporate innovation group for like three years. And I started to learn all the different ways that innovation can work. It doesn't just have to be a new fancy product. It can be cost savings. It can be as simple as just a new feature or tweaking language. It doesn't all have to be Tesla, does it? It doesn't all have to be like a moonshot or <laughs> let's create something radically new that the world has never seen. Because let's face it, most of those fail. 
your timing has to be right. The money has to be right. In the case of Tesla, you have to have a CEO who likes to tweet memes, um, you know, date celebrities and stuff. And not everyone has an Elon Musk. So, you know, for the rest of us, it's, um, here we go. I'll, I'll answer this question and a small little tidbit here. I really think innovation is less about inventing new things and it's more about selling them. That was my experience working in sort of corporate innovation. Not always about the new fancy idea. A lot of times about getting people on your side, getting them to understand it, mm. explaining it, explaining a like a complex concept to them and getting them on board and then getting the budget on board and then going out and finding more people to get on board. Or if you're, you know, like I am and you are kind of out on your own, it's about, you know, selling, selling the idea to people who are going to buy a course or buy a book or you're just kind of being that bridge between, in my case, a really complex, very deep, you know, whole series of like psychology and cognitive science and neuromarketing, all of this stuff, and kind of being the bridge between that and people who want to understand that, but who are not experts in that. So that's one thing I would say about choice hacking, if I'll bring it back to choice hacking, is I definitely don't see myself as a behavioral scientist. Like I'm not going to go run studies and things. There are are other people who enjoy doing that. <laughs> I'm very glad that they're going to do that. But I am here interpreting things, kind of putting the lens of like the real world. In the case of the case studies that I put together, looking at businesses that are really successful, a little bit of survivorship bias, but kind of doing an autopsy to say, okay, I think this is working because of this effect. And this seems to be working because of this effect. And that's really where I see choice hacking playing that role. It's just introducing people, getting them into the world, solving some really specific business problems, but it doesn't have to be like a, it, I'm not a behavioral scientist. There's tons of consultancies and things out there that are on the complex side of things. The ambiguity and the testing, the experimentation. And I'm very glad that they're there, but I'm, I'm slightly upstream. So if you, if you come up with a great idea, product, service, whatever it might be, and you can't communicate it and sell it, yes. it's not worth anything. Well, that's the whole criticism of Steve Jobs, isn't it? It's that he was like a sales guy. But without the Steve Jobs, you know, to sell the actual innovation and to be there, I mean, just like Elon Musk, I mean, I think they're very similar. You know, it's you have these like brilliant engineers and they're building something amazing. But, you know, their job, very rightly so, because they're focused on creating like crazy new technologies. Their job is not to say, you know, the classic example of the iPhone, right? So when they introduced the iPhone, I'm going to see if I can remember the three things, but basically a slide came up and Steve Jobs, because there weren't like smartphones. I mean, this is like 2007. So it was Blackberry and that was like the most advanced thing. And he had the slide come up behind him and it was basically a music player, an internet browser and a phone. Okay. Those three things. And he said it again and again. So it just was a big blank slide with those three things on it. And then it flipped around. He did like transitions, <laughs> slide text. It flipped around and it was the iPhone. And suddenly everybody got it. But if he had said, here is a magic box. And in this box, you can get all of the world's information. And you can also make phone calls. And if you want to listen to music, there's music in there too. It, it, you know, people wouldn't have been so excited about the iPhone. It would have been great. But would it have been world changing? It's hard to know. Well, Jen, we're at the end of this new normal episode. I'm so happy that we were able to get together via Zoom. I appreciate you taking a bit of time out of your day today. And I look forward to connecting with you and, of course, following you on all the proper locations where you are today and where you might be tomorrow. All those links are below in the show notes uh, for the listeners here. Thank you for being here today and I look forward to our next chat. 
Yes, amazing. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. <laughs>